Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 228 of the MyFit Podcast. This week, I bring back one of my favorite guests, Adam Lane Smith. Adam is a two-time number one Amazon best-selling novelist and a retired licensed psychotherapist specializing in trauma and attachment with both clinical and correctional mental health settings. Adam has written over 20 books and coached thousands of individuals on all topics ranging from divorce to inmates facing the death penalty. Our first topic was we kind of had to laugh and get together again because I recently put out a TikTok from our conversation last year at about this time, and it went absolutely viral. On my page, it got almost 2 million views, and on his page, it accumulated another 2 to 2.5 million views. So about 4.5 to 5 million people saw this TikTok reel about Adam explaining why it's so hard to decide on where you want to go to eat. And we had a good time laughing and talking about why it went viral. And for those of you that didn't see it, you will hear it here in the first couple seconds of this episode. So we had to break down on why that was so dang popular. After that, we talked about defining what is attachment and what does a healthy attachment look like. Then we talked about the three main styles of an unhealthy attachment. After that, we gave some applicable advice on how to find a loving boyfriend or girlfriend. We talked about the most common mistakes people make within the first three dates of dating somebody new. We talked about why you shouldn't use baby talk when you're talking to your kids. Let me close down by talking about the dichotomy of expectations that parents give to their children. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Also, go ahead and follow Adam on his social medias. He's all over on all different social media platforms and gives great advice every single day. Your guys' five-star feedback helps this show grow tremendously and also helps on to, helps to bring on more amazing guests like Adam. Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com lmnt.com forward slash m-i-f-i-t go get yours now adam lane smith welcome back to the show round two it's such a joy to have you back on we've got some fun things to talk about today i've been looking forward to this one this is going to be spicy today let's do it man (laughs) spicy i love it man so we talked a year ago and so funny i've been posting on tiktok recently something that you're very familiar with and big on and uh one of our videos that we did together went what i would call viral and it, it got over 1.7 million views on my channel. You've gotten over a million on several of your channels. I think we counted just off air here that we've gotten about 5 million views on this <laughs> clip alone. And some of my listeners aren't on TikTok or social media. So we're going to take a second and listen to this clip. Check it out. 
I'll give you one more life hack. Do you ever ask your fiance where she wants to go eat and it, it turns into like this crazy conversation? Have you ever had that experience? Yes. <laughs> Do you know why that happens and how to solve it? Teach me. Okay. So it happens because you throw out there, hey, where do you want to go eat? Their brain starts running like this, thinking about like how to give you the best experience and give both of you the best experience for the relationship. And then they're like, well, it's up to you, babe, wherever you want to go. I'll just be happy as long as you're happy. You're like, how do, like, no, what do you want to eat? Tell me, woman. And it turns into this like gladiator death match. The best thing you can do is say, hey, babe, let's go get something to eat. I would like to go blank or blank. Either place is fine with me. Of those two, which one sounds best to you? And she, her brain will say, ah, he'll be happy either place. The pressure's off. We'll have a great experience. But you have to make it clear you will be happy with either experience. Adam, talk to me about that clip, man. Why is it so important? And why did 5 million people watch it? <laughs> you know, that's something every couple pretty much has been through of where are we going to eat? If you check the hashtag on, on TikTok, where to eat is a gigantic, ridiculous hashtag. And the joke is that if there was ever a restaurant called I Don't Care, that's the restaurant every human being would eat at in that, in that entire city. It's, it's something that we fight about so much because when we get hungry, we all have different cravings and then we have different cravings emotionally and different cravings. It's something every couple has been through. Where do you want to eat until eventually you just leap out the window and find something to eat on the front lawn because you're so hungry from fighting for 10 hours about where to eat. One thing I, I used to ask my wife when we very first got together, she was diff had a difficult time making decisions and I'd get up and I, it would be lunchtime. I'd say, all right, have you decided where you wanted to eat dinner last night? <laughs> And it is, it's, it's, it's something that we all have lived with. And when people hear that, they just, they love it, man. 5 million views of people loving it now or not loving it in some cases. And that, that's a good point. We've, we've seen some comments. This is the first video I think that I've had that has gone what I would call viral. And the comments are interesting. Uh, <laughs> I kind of broke into three people, Adam. I thought the first people were, amen. Thank you so much. This is exactly, I'm sending this to my husband. Part two was, I just want them to make a decision for me. Why are you even asking me? And then the third one I thought was interesting as well was kind of this harsh, uh, no, that's not how you talk to your significant other. That's how you talk to your child. What were your thoughts on the comments? Um, so number one, I was glad that a lot of women, it did resonate for them and it did alleviate some of the anxiety, some of the pressure. That was exactly the purpose of that was, hey, here's a tip that can help you as a couple if this is what you're dealing with take care of it like this. And some, some couples just resonated it with it. Some guys said, this is amazing. Thank you for saving my life. And some women were like, yes, you nailed it. Thanks. Like that was the crowd. Definitely. That that's going to work for. We also had, like you said, though, the crowd pop in of women who were saying like, I am exhausted from the mental load of making decisions all day. Why can't he make even a single decision? Why doesn't he care? Why should I have to pick where we eat? Can't he just stand up for once and make a choice? It was like brutally harsh. And I didn't read those as brutally harsh to us. I read that as brutally harsh to the man that they have been living with and the something they wish they could say to him. Because there are so many wives out there who are utterly exhausted from feeling like they are carrying the entire mental load of the relationship. I have a book I wrote from years back called Exhausted Wives, Bewildered Husbands, talking about the woman having to carry the entire burden of the relationship while the man like steps back, tells her everything's her fault, everything's her problem. He doesn't want to do the emotional investment and he doesn't take anything seriously till she is so angry and burned out. She's just done. I've, I've treated that, that kind of couple, unfortunately, thousands of times by now. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes we we think as men, and maybe some of this will be personal, some of my own experience, but sometimes we want our wives or significant others to be happy. So we want to ask them places like, where do you want to go? I'm trying, I'm trying to help you here. And in reality, sometimes they're like, look, I don't care. Just make a decision and we're just going to go with it. I'll be happy either way. That's a hundred percent. And sometimes it is time to step up and make a decision. Sometimes it is. If she's had a long day, just pick a place and take her out. And if you are a guy who's not stepping up in the relationship, make sure that you start that because I will warn you, that's one of the biggest causes of divorce that I've seen is the man, not just not making decisions on where to eat, but leaving his wife utterly exhausted and spent by the relationship and unfulfilled, unnurtured and telling her you're over emotional. I don't care what you're saying. You know, this is just too much. You're just whining. And just pushing back endless battles, dudes, like number one, step up, but also wives. There are some wives out there who are, uh, how shall we say, not generous toward their husband. And they feel that she, she feels she is doing all of the work and saying he is doing zero. There's also cases where the husband is doing a significant amount of the work and she is 
not seeing that he actually is. So couples make have that conversation. Where's your balance point? Are you taking care of each other? Are you acknowledging each other? Are you respecting each other? Give that love, give that connection. That is that is one of the best things you can do as a couple is to love and acknowledge and accept your partner and make sure their needs are also taken care of, not just your own. Cool. Since we last talked, I've got a lot of new listeners that maybe haven't caught our first episode. So before we dive really deep into some of the stuff that we're going to go into today, you're an attachment specialist. For some people, that's a that's a, that's a new word for them. So before we get too deep, can we just set the table on what does attachment mean? What does it look like? What doesn't it look like? 100%. Attachment is the way that you connect other human beings to give and receive love. It can be secure if your parents raised you to believe that you're going to be loved, that you don't have to fight for approval, that you don't have to protect yourself against other people. But generally speaking, you can work with them to get your needs met, share what you need, talk, feel it out and say, okay, we're going to work together and negotiate, take care of each other's needs. No one's exploiting anyone. It's a very easy, comfortable system where you can relax and enjoy that relate that life and those relationships. It can break in three different ways, though. You can get insecure attachment. If your parents were hypercritical, if you got abused as a kid, you got neglected, your dad was gone, you never saw him, and you wondered why. If you were in the NICU for the first several weeks of life and your brain processed, no one's holding me, no one's caring for me, I'm scared, I'm alone, and your brain just holds on to that daycare way too early and in large amounts can, take, can, can cause this as well. All kinds of issues can cause attachment issues if your brain doesn't say, I am loved by other people and they will love me and care for me and work with me in good faith. The brain can either split and say, it's all my fault. There's something wrong with me that makes people reject me. So I have to earn approval. I have to be perfect all the time. I have to make sure I never make mistakes. I need to make sure I'm never exposed as a fraud. I have to make people like me by doing nice things for them. Otherwise, they will abandon me. That's anxious attachment. And there's avoidant attachment. Something is wrong with everybody else that makes them innately selfish. They will never do the right thing. They only act properly when I make them feel good first. So their love, their happy meter is full. Then they will begrudgingly do the things I need them to do, or they will begrudgingly be moral people. Otherwise, they're going to turn on me. They'll betray me. They'll hurt me. I can't open up because people use it against me. I have to stay safe by managing other people or keeping them at arm's length. That's avoidant. Then the third one is a blend of the two where you got really hurt over and over and over. It's called disorganized style. Um, you got hurt so many times that your brain said neither approach is safe enough. I have to have both and be hypersensitive at all times. I have to defend myself from other people. If something even smells wrong, I will end the relationship, burn the house down, jump out the window. But then you feel bad and you miss that person. You realize, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't rational. So you kick in the door and you have the box of chocolates and say, I'm so sorry, please take me back. But the house is still on fire. And the person is now mad at you and then you're trying to, to re-acknowledge the relationship while it's still burning. That's the disorganized style. And the extreme outgrowths of these would be personality disorders, which is what therapists usually learn about. Most therapists don't learn about attachment styles because they're not diagnosable unless, unless you're like early baby childhood. And most therapists don't get that much of that training. So most therapists don't understand attachment. I was a therapist for years and years. I've been training and studying and doing all this for 15 years now. And I was a psychotherapist for years before I retired so I could specialize into attachment worldwide because nobody knows it. Hmm. Let's take it one step further. Uh, so out of those three, Adam, which one do you see the most common? Mm, it depends. So for men, the research actually shows most men who have attachment issues are more avoidant. And these would be men who get into relationships. They love bomb you at the beginning. They make you feel amazing. They fill your happy meter. They rush ahead in the relationship for the feelings, feelings, feelings. They tell you stories that make you feel sad for them or make you impressed by them. And then they they just make you feel like a million dollars and they pull you into the relationship. And about seven months in, they break up with you or they start saying, you know, I'm just not in love with you. I'm not feeling it as much. And they start backing off. It's the guys who can never really make deep friendships. It's the guys who are just alone all the time. They may be amazing. Often they're incredible at business because they know how to manage other people, but they don't know how to build deeper connections. So eventually they hit a depressing point in their life where they're just sad and lonely. A lot of them come into my private coaching practice at about 29 and say, Adam, I've never had a girlfriend or I've only had one and I really disappointed her and we broke up. You know, What do I do to get connected to people? I don't even have friends. Like, Who am I supposed to connect with? And I have to teach them and walk them through the process of trusting another human being. That's avoidance mostly for men. We do have a lot of anxious attachment. If you've ever heard the nice guy syndrome where he's earning approval, trying to make women like him, like mom liked him kind of thing. That's nice guy approval of trying not to be abandoned, but they're mostly avoidant women. 
mostly anxious, mostly approval seeking if their if their attachment is broken, mostly fear of abandonment, mostly feeling not good enough. Um, they'll get into a relationship and do anything for that approval. They will chase bad men who tr mistreat them and stay with them. A lot of them because they have something a hormone in their brain called oxytocin. They're deficient in oxytocin, and the the avoidant man love bombs them and saturates them with oxytocin, which creates a natural addiction. And that's the only person they know how to get it from. And this is why you see so many young women who are insecure chasing men who treat them badly. But the beginning, he treated them very well. And her brain keeps saying, I just need to get him back to the place where he was when he was loving me. But it, it, that was a fake place. That was where he was just love bombing you and saturating you. So anyone watching this who's been in a bad relationship or is looking to date in the future, be aware of your attachment style. You could be chasing approval or you could be giving approval and then running and feeling terrified of commitment. Both of those are really big indicators for attachment issues. One of the things I love about you most, Adam, is you say, you know, before we start looking at other people's attachment, we first need to kind of look at our own. We need to understand who we are before we start getting into the dating world. And um, another thing I really enjoy about your content is you not only teach people, you know, what these things are, but you also give some applicable steps because I think that's the biggest thing is what can we do about this? So let's start with the men and let's just say most are in that avoidant um, realm. What can men do to help get rid of, or I would say improve upon their attachment issues? Absolutely. So the number one thing, if you're an avoidant person, an avoidant person, a man or woman, is you must come to believe that what you've experienced is not a real generalization to the entire human world. What, what you grew up with in your family system of people who hurt each other and didn't follow their morals and they were selfish and entitled and they hurt you or they just betrayed you, that is not how everyone operates. Your brain has logged this as a fact that other people are incapable of good faith, but it's not true. There are selective people out there who are worthy of your trust. Those are the people that you should connect with, not willy-nilly every human out there. You need to go out and find the right people. And there's a couple steps doing that, um, consistency with their internal moral values, consistency with their life goals of going toward those things, sacrificing for those two things. When the, when the chips are down, do they stay to their morals and principles and their goals? Do they, do they continue to push to those? Can they accept your baggage and can they be honest about their own baggage and red flags prefer, rather than defending against them, being defensive? And then they, can they work on genuine mutual fulfillment where they really care for you and they will do what you need because they actually care for you? So many avoidant people are terrified to open up and trust with their needs, their baggage, anything, because they are afraid other people are going to hurt them or turn on them for those things or resent them. Um but that's the that's the key point is finding one or two human beings that break the mold that prove to your brain there are some good human beings out here and then deepening your bond with them on purpose like i teach in my coaching there's a step called i am i'm an anxious person the the anxious person speech of i'm going to open up to you and reveal to you how i felt about humanity and about other people, but I don't want to feel that way anymore. I'd love to have a deeper relationship with you. What does that look like? Can I share my needs with you? Can I talk with you? Can we actually be friends instead of just acquaintances and, and keeping each other at arm's length? Is that something you want? And if so, how much sharing is too much sharing? That's the big thing with avoidant people. How much sharing is too much where you will then throw up and try to get away from me? How much is too much? How much love and, and acceptance is too much love and acceptance? Building that in and having realistic expectations about the relationship and then seeing other people live them out great way to fix avoidant attachment. Anxious attachment is the belief you are worthless and unlovable. So the only way to fix this is to diminish your anxiety response enough that you won't have a panic attack when you go to somebody else and open up and say, I believe I'm an unlovable piece of garbage. Could you please accept me as I am knowing this about me? Can you still be my friend? Because I want to be honest and I have stopped being honest because I'm so afraid I have to earn approval that I don't do the things that I want to do, that the good values. I, I hate myself for doing that. And I chase people's approval and do all these things for approval and I hate it. And I'm going to be honest. Is it okay? And can you still be my friend, even though I'm a worthless piece of scum who lives in the garbage can? Could you still be my friend or do I have to go live under a bridge with coyotes now? And they'll say, yes, I already knew this about you. You were anxious. It's all good. And they, they will love you and you'll release oxytocin. And then as you generate that oxytocin, it fixes your security gap that other people were using to manipulate you. And you start feeling accepted. That begins healing that, that insecure attachment style of the anxiety piece. Um, and as you do that, that right there is what heals it. The disorganized style, you can sabotage in both directions. So you've got to open up with people and share, hey, this is what I do. I may sabotage. If you see me sabotaging, here's something you can gently call me on and understand that this is how I'll take it on. I'm going to do this. And you do that with a couple of people. And then you start checking in when you feel yourself escalate. You check in with someone who's going to ground you with reality. 
call you on it, say, hey, wait a minute, you're being crazy and irrational. Oh, yeah, I probably am. And then you calm down and then you manage it more appropriately. So you, you really outsource some of your reality checking to the people around you that you trust. And that begins healing you as you lean into the, re the relationship and you desensitize your brain to the extreme fear that you're having. Those are the three big steps that you got to follow for those. And there's there's other ways. There's troubleshooting. I work with this in my coaching all the time. But if you got those attachment pieces, those are your three steps you need to be looking at. Sounds like to me, there's a lot of power in what I would call putting your chips on the table. Just saying, hey, look, this is where I'm coming from. This is what I struggle with. I know this about me. Um, either A, what are your thoughts? Or B, how can we work through this together? I think there's a lot of power in that. Maybe that's not on the first date. Maybe it's a couple dates in after you get to know them a little bit. But there's probably some power in just kind of letting your guard down and being honest. Hey, look, this is where I'm at. I'm working on this. What are your thoughts? Rather than people probably think, Adam, I don't want to tell them because then they're going to judge me and then they're going to leave me. And then it's going to, and things are going so well right now. We're three dates in. Why do I want to tell them I'm an anxious mm -hmm. person? Talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. So I've got, it's funny you say that, I've got an a community called the Attachment Circle. We run on Discord 24-7. We have group meetings and the men and women in there both, it's so funny, the men and women, they're both, but I teach them the three-date method of getting commitment and leading toward exclusive exclusivity within those first three dates. They say, the men say, I'm not supposed to talk about commitment on the first date. Women <laughs> will hate that. And the women say, I'm not supposed to talk about commitment on the first date. Men will hate that. And I say, men, would you like it if a woman talked to you about it? Yes. Oh, that'd be great. And women, do you, would you like it if a man mentioned commitment on the first date? That'd be wonderful. And they both sides are afraid of the other side, hating them for saying, you know what? During the date, I would love to have a committed relationship down the line. We don't have to get married today, but down the line, maybe a year from now or something, a deep level commitment. That's what I'm really looking for. Maybe marriage, you know, something, something along those lines. That's what I want. Is just so we're on the same page. Is that what you want too? If it is, great. We can keep dating and we'll work toward commitment if we're right for each other. If we're not, hey, no harm, no foul. We'll finish our dinner. We'll shake hands. We'll have a great time and we'll part as friends. But let's just make sure we're on the same page for what we want. First date out of the first hour or whatever you're together, that, that 20 seconds right there, that vets the other person if they're a good match for you for commitment or not. Totally. How, is, how has modern culture caused more insecure men and anxious women. I feel like, you know, I, I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 30 years old now, but I feel like now more than ever, you're seeing more anxious men and more insecure women. It could be just the people I run with, or it could be just the age and millennials. I don't know what it is. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why is modern society played such a role in that, especially in 2023. So you are absolutely right. Number one, I've been researching this and researching into the last hundred years of attachment is getting so much worse. Wow. So years back, they did some research in some major cities and they found that about 65% of adults at the time probably had some had secure attachment with about 35% having broken attachment. But as they've updated the research and the generations have got younger and younger, what they found is that's shifting actually more toward like a 50-50. 50 percent wow. of adults now have attachment issues and 50 percent of adults don't. And they were finding now that the older generations have fewer attachment issues and the newer generations have more. So as the boomers pass away and as the millennials grow and, the, and, and everybody starts growing up and we have next generations, you're probably going to start looking at a shift of 65 percent with or even 75% with. It's getting worse. The reason for that is we're supposed to have five safety networks that a human being is supposed to connect with. Your immediate family, right? Mom and dad and siblings. And then your, your expanded family network, all the other family members you're supposed to have. What they call the kith and kin network of married into married in or surrounding families, friends of friends kind of thing. The, the family of friends who are so close that it's like family. Then you've got your neighborhood or your tribe or your village or whatever you want to call it. The big surrounding community or your micro community kind of piece. And then you've got some sort of religious organization or religious faith or religious connection, whatever it is. Those five pieces are supposed to be there. And you've probably already put together humans today in America and the West have lost all five. Our families are broken up or we're never married in the first place. We've got all kinds of rampant destruction through all of those systems. We've lost family farms, for example, over the last hundred years. We've lost family networks. People used to never travel more than 20 miles from the place they were born. Now it's fine to just pick up and move across the world. Um, all, all the time, I had a very good friend whose mother, all her kids moved away, and then they all moved back and started having kids. And then she got for an extra 10 grand a year, a job offer to move 10 miles away or 10, 10 hours away, away from all her grandchildren. Everybody broke up the family system, just decided to move away for that extra 10 grand when finally her family had reunified. And that is incredibly common here in America. Some people listening to this are like, so what? 
a hundred years ago, that would have been considered so mind-blowing that a person would give that up for the sake of money. They would throw away their family for money. Inconceivable a hundred years ago. Now it's the normal. It's so normal that people don't even question it. They say, yeah, I need all that money. That's fine. I got an extra, you know, after I retire, I'll have time with my family. No, that's 10 years you've now lost. That right there, our family systems are obliterated. So the generational issues are getting worse because if your parents, like I said, didn't teach you correct secure attachment, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents, somebody would have stepped in. You would have bonded with your cousins. You'd have friends through your cousin network, through your family kith and kin network. You'd have all these connections with other kids. You knew their families. They knew your families. You'd find somebody to marry who was within your giant network. You had known them or known their family for a long time. So you weren't dating strangers. Now everybody's dating strangers with no reason to respect you or care for you. You're literally strangers that will never see each other again. So they can treat you however they want. There's all kinds of problems coming into our attachment issues. That's why our, our society is breaking worse than ever for that reason. The million dollar question. What do we do about it? <laughs> Number one, every single person needs to start fixing their attachment and understand how absolutely vital this is to the entire human experience. If you don't have good attachment, you're also probably not going to have sufficient oxytocin, for example. And then you're going to, as you spiral down with no very low oxytocin, you won't have sufficient GABA, gamma amino biuric acid. This is a, a neuro uh, inhibitory neurotransmitter released when you have oxytocin supply that suppresses anxiety and depression symptoms, and it makes it easier to sleep at night. It helps you produce more melatonin. It does a number of things. But also when you have both of those in your system, it suppresses cortisol release and stress. When you have high cortisol and you aren't being able to suppress it, your body just completely starts shredding. So you get medical problems, chronic pain, mental problems. You need medications. Like some of my clients that I used to work with in therapy systems, 27 different medications massive, massive attachment issues. And I would work with them when they were in their seventies for the end of their life. After a lifetime of it, body was in shreds, family was in shreds, mind was in shreds. Their whole life had just been endless pain and struggle. We start fixing your attachment and all of a sudden they felt better than they'd ever felt in 70 years. And we're able to come off some of those medications that right there, as you fix your attachment, you don't need all those crutches and you start healing and you say, wow, this is how I'm supposed to feel as a human. If everybody starts doing that and then people start connecting and forming some of those networks again, right? I've got my private community of people starting, just barely starting to do this, but you form connections with your family, you form pseudo families, you have a couple of kids, you raise them with good attachment. I've got four kids I'm raising with good attachment. We reshape the future into intentional attachment systems that protect it rather than just shredding it for the sake of cash. As we do that, we start changing the future. So learning about your own attachment, number one step. I'd like to take one step further on anxiety. And what I'm hearing more is uh, obviously people are becoming more anxious, but then just the term social anxiety is becoming more and more prevalent right now. Can we take a step further on why is anxiety so popular now? And what can people, honestly, Adam, what can people do about it? What can we do about it? Anxiety is popular so much now for, for all of those same reasons. When your hormones are off from broken mm -hmm. attachment and broken mm -hmm. relationships, you're, you feel alone, but humans aren't also meant to be alone. We're supposed to have those five networks of safety people who will protect us if something goes wrong. Now we are alone in a sea of strangers, and we think that we have to get approval from people. We have to perform endlessly. So our safety is now based endlessly on performance instead of health of loving relationships. Humans aren't meant to live like this. Uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, if a human was exposed in a culture of strangers and they only were allowed to eat and sleep and live based on how well they performed, and they thought that they'd be thrown out of their culture at any time by messing up accidentally, then yeah, they would be a complete train wreck of a human being because you're in endless survival mode living out in the weeds and the rocks with wolves trying to eat you and no one around to help you. That's what our systems think we're living under right now. Every human probably while watching this is living in perpetual survival mode because we're in a worst case scenario for our brains and our chemistry and how we're built. So yeah, it's, it's a bad, it's, oh, it's so bad. I just stop and think about it and it's, 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 people are dying out there. That's why anxiety. And that's why, you know, the, um, the taking your own life epidemic is got just out of control. The, the sub controlled substances epidemic. Um, so many epidemics are out there right now, even, even hookup culture, all of it is so bad right now because people are so afraid they are desperately trying to connect to strangers to feel safe to form those bonds that they're supposed to have and then they're also trying to cover up the pain through dopamine binges through just shutting down their system their nervous system with medications or whatever it may be but also keep in mind if you have anxious attachment style or avoidant attachment style every single social interaction now is an experience where you must perform perfectly or you are going to get hurt or abandoned 
so many people who say, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. Well, no, you're not an introvert. An introvert is somebody who prefers time to themselves because they recharge that way, but they're not utterly destroyed by having to place an order over the phone. They're not utterly obliterated by five minutes with their best friend. Going to school should not wreck your day or your entire life because you cannot function by having somebody breathe in your direction. That is not an introvert. That is somebody with massive, massive attachment issues who is so afraid of making a mistake and getting hurt that they can no longer function effectively. That's what that is. Why do you think anxiety runs higher in women? I'm not convinced that it runs higher in women. I'm wondering if it's more expressed in women, number one, because women are able to express it. Um, the different sides of the brain, we have our logical side and our emotional side, and the male brain goes back to observe and forward to act upon. The female brain goes back to observe and then back and forth to process. And as we have emotional agitation, our logical brain diminishes, our emotional brain escalates like this. Women often intuitively go to each other when she is escalated and her friend is more logical and calm, and they will process it together and say, I am really scared about this. I'm really scared about this. Should I be scared about this? What about this? And the other woman will help her process it through and say, logically, you know, you shouldn't be scared about this. Here's what you can do. Here's some help. I'm here to help you. You hug. You say, I'm so sorry you're going through this. And it helps relieve the anxiety, the anxiety and stress. That in turn really helps those women diminish that anxiety. So I, I think that men are just as anxious, but if there is a, a, a component of stronger female anxiety, I am wondering if it's because part of the, I mean, a female neurology is I need to be sheltered and protected because you know, biologically you're going to be taking care of children. You're going to be nurtured. Women typically through every culture on earth have been on the inside of the family unit or the inside of, of the, the culture unit protected and then stable, but then building the family from within. They're stabilized and kept safe so that they can build and flourish and create networks and take care of everybody else in the tribe, whereas men are on the outside, and then they have to protect and build the frame that everyone else lives in, so they're more exposed and more used to being exposed among strangers and brushing up against strangers. If you have a culture where women are entirely like, hey, all right, you're 18, get out of here, go live among strangers, try to find a husband that you've never met before with no connection, Hopefully you don't get attacked and, and mauled in an alley or something like that or murdered or whatever, you know, on the news. Hopefully we'll, we'll find you. And also your dad has never really loved you and your mom doesn't really like you and you can't talk to any of your family. And like she's utterly alone out there. Absolute, absolute worst case scenario for a woman to be out there like that. That is biologically, not that they can't handle it, but biologically hunter gatherer brains. That woman would die. That woman is not going to survive. Men, maybe we have an, we have a chance, right? We go out in the wild with a spear. We find other people and kill them and take their stuff. Or we go out there and hunt a mammoth and bring it, drag it home by the trunk. We are used to a little more used to going out, but we're used to going out with our connector friends, with our tribe. We're used to not maybe not going out completely alone, but we are used to going out. If there's a component of more anxiety, I would say it's because women are so utterly alone. They feel naked and exposed before the entire world. Well said. The anxiety talk brings me to a quote that you said. You said that it's okay to be sad. That doesn't mean you're depressed. It's okay to be worried. That doesn't mean you're anxious. It's okay to experience trauma. That doesn't mean you have PTSD. Not everything is a diagnosable issue. And I feel like now more than ever, people want to jump to, I, I see things in spectrums and people want to jump to one end or the other on these spectrums, including anxiety. Talk to me a little bit about why every, not everything is a diagnosable issue. If it's a diagnosis, you are safer because you can wave a flag and say, don't attack me, don't criticize me, don't hurt me. I have an issue that no one else can argue with because look, it, it, I have a piece of paper right here that says I have this issue and that means that I am limited so I cannot do the things that you want me to do. Please don't hurt me. That's the diagnosis. People running to a diagnosis feel safer because it, ex I hate to say it this way, it excuses them from having to do the work to fix it or overcome it. Because so many of them don't believe they're capable of doing the work of fixing it and overcoming it. They're not lazy. They just don't believe they themselves are capable of it. It's usually the anxious attachment people who have that. And again, they believe they are utterly garbage. So having a diagnosis and saying, okay, this one part of me is not totally worthless. I have a name for it and I can't be blamed for that one part. Right. So I don't have to feel as bad about myself. It's that kind of safety. That's what I believe people run to a diagnosis for. 
because I, I was a th- psychotherapist for years. I would diagnose some people. They would fight it tooth and nail. I don't want to diagnose this. That's stupid. Get out of here with that. No, I just had some problems. I'm not having those problems now. And they would fight the diagnosis. Some people would say, what do I have? What do I have? Please tell me what I have. Can you write that down so I can show it to my mom? Can you print this off so that I have this as proof? Can I take this to school and show my counselor? Can I like it's it for many? It's a safety net of don't hurt me. Here's my reason for why I am so scared. And it's a little bit easier on them to say, hey, this, I, I am an anxious person versus I have some anxiety. That's a very different thing. You start wrapping your identity in this stuff, man. And that's when yeah. things can get real dangerous. This is, this is who I am. Well, and when you teach people that you have a diagnosis and it's never going to change, we have the disease model here in the West of I have, di- I have an anxiety disorder. I have generalized anxiety disorder. I will have it for my entire life. My was my brain chemistry was wrong when I was born, and now I must take these medications that this company has created in the last 30 years so that I can feel better every day, barely enough to function. I, this is a basic biological thing that is completely normal that everyone should experience. No, it's it is that's the disease model that is not correct. I use the response model. So all those diagnoses in the DSM-5 manual, like almost every single one is a response to the attachment and fear and environmental struggles that you grew up with. If you believe you are innately unlovable and no one will ever care about you, of course, that's going to ratchet up your constant chronic anxiety level. Of course, you're going to be at greater risk for depression symptoms later on when it feels like everything's hopeless. Of course, if you get traumatized and you have a trauma, you are going to get stuck on it because your brain will say, how do I make sure this never happens again? I can't. I'm naked. I'm afraid. I'm alone. No one will ever help me. Then you start into the PTSD cycle. Of course, your brain is going to escalate out of control when you're terrified and you feel like you have to perform perfectly, but you never can. And you get trapped in an endless paradox of eventually I'm going to destroy my life and everyone will hate me. Of course, you're going to cycle up into hypomanic or manic episodes into bipolar territory. I've worked with doctors who refuse to medicate bipolar under certain ages because they believe it's purely a behavioral issue based on that response model back to attachment. There's doctors out there working like this, but we use the medical model in America of it's a chemical imbalance. Take this medication for the rest of your life. That will have side effects. So take this other medication. And then when you still don't feel good enough, take this additional medication and then sit here and watch your television and your Netflix. We will take care of you through disability checks. Just sit there. You are helpless. Continue to vote for us. And that's what we have here in America is that system. Unfortunately, it doesn't have to be that way. So giving someone a diagnosis shouldn't be the end of their life. It should be the beginning of their recovery pathway so that they don't have that anymore. Well said. I promised last time we didn't get to some of the stuff for the single folks out there. And I had some people say, Hey man, why didn't you ask it? So I want to get to just before we move on to some of the parent stuff, you wanted to talk a little bit about how to find a loving girlfriend. And I would like to add also boyfriend. So how to find a loving girlfriend and a boyfriend. Talk to my single folks out there. hundred percent, man. I, you know, I will say as much as I work with relationships by large, the majority of people who come into my coaching practice sign up with me to learn how to find a loving partner who's going cool. to care for them and nurture them. So I, I largely work with single folks, both men and women. A lot of relationship help, but single folks, I mean, they're everywhere and they're hurting and they're afraid and they're alone, but they want to be loved and they don't know what's okay to, to ask for. So three dates, first three dates are so much. Vet them for commitment on the first date. Second date, you go in and state your goals and your principles and and what you're living for. And you compare those two things. Hey, you know, who are you as a person? You don't have to say, these are my goals and these are my principles. I'm reading them off of this card. You don't have to say that. Say like, hey, who are you? When you're not here at the table with eating a hot dog, who are you out in the real world? What are you doing? What are you living to? What are you trying to build in your life? Here's what I'm trying to build. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's my legacy, right? I did this with my wife when I met her 15 years ago. And I said, hey, you know, I, I want to have a family with kids. I want to have this. I want to do this. Like, what about you? And she was like, yeah, that's what I want too. Kind of like this, maybe a few more kids than you want. I was like, all right, we could probably work on that. All right. And then like, hey, tell me about you. Like, what, what are your what are your values? What do you live to? Like, what, who are you when the stress is down? Like, what's the most important thing in your life? Listening to her stories about herself of how she persevered with values instead of her trying to tell me like, you know, like so many single people do, like, here's my sad story. Feel good. Still feel sad for me. Or here's my amazing story. Be impressed by me. Or here's this story. Like I'm going to be really hot in, you know, all the relationship pieces. Like instead of that, like, here's my story about how I persevered. Here's my story about how I met my friend and what I value in my friend. Here's my story about my family and what values we share. Here's some challenges we overcame telling you stories about their goals and their principles that way. 
When we date, we tell each other stories that illuminate what we are trying to make the other person see about us. Keep that in mind, single people out there. And that should be the second date and third date. And then on toward the end of the third date, you start talking about realistic baggage. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what will you bring into the relationship the other person needs to know? Like, hey, you know what? I've got this kind of this difficulty. Like, 29-year-old guys coming to my coaching. Adam, no woman is ever going to want to date a man who hasn't dated before the age of 29. Well, no, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Um, you just got to spin it right. It's like if you have a resume with a gap, you got to spin the gap. There's a big difference between I have spent the last 10 years sitting at home on a couch playing video games in my underwear, and I have been working diligently to build a business, or I've been taking care of myself, or I was depressed for a while, but then I came out of it and I'm helping other people. You know, I was rescuing orphans on the streets of India and teaching them to read, like very different from I was at home in my underpants for 10 years. Learn to build those pieces in, but then really share like, hey, this is this is where I'm at. You know, I've had it, I've had attachment issues. I have fixed them. But if I ever have these behaviors, here's what you should look for in the relationship. Call me on it. I will work on it internally. You don't have to enable me or, or baby me. But here are some realistic issues that you should be, know, be aware of in our relationship that we'll just have to make sure we work on. You should be able to share that and accept each other. By the end of that, now you've got commitment. Now you've got goals. Now you've got values. You've got compatibility. And then you've got real baggage. Is the other person able to be real with you? And have they done the work? Or are they a complete you know, garbage fire at this point? Which one is it? Are they managing the red flags? Are they accepting of yours? Okay. Then you say, hey, you know what? I would love for us to be exclusive. Like, let's make this happen. We're both looking for commitment. Let's let's be a thing and let's test this out for the next year and see how we do. If at a year we're good, maybe we should just get engaged at that point. Like, let's test each other through stress to see what's what it's going to look like through the next year and, and see if we're a good match or not. We sound like we are. You get exclusive at three dates. And you lean into the relationship. It's that simple. And there's there's special methods for where to find the right partner and how to filter for them and how to use your network, your local network to help you with that. But that's the process. Three dates. Take care of yourself that way. Don't don't date for fun. I'm curious to hear what you have experienced and heard are what are the biggest mistakes people are making within those first three dates. Obviously, mm -hmm. we know now what the good looks like, but we got to talk about the bad too, because I think that's what we can probably all relate to. If we're still single, we're probably making these mistakes. So what are some of the mistakes you're seeing people make? Mm -hmm. So getting, getting too intimate way too fast and flooding with the wrong hormones and flooding with feelings and it overwhelms you. So then you don't want to check for compatibility because you might lose the other person. That's that is called that's what love bombers will do to you. That's what manipulators will do to you is move as fast as possible into the physical, make you feel great. Then you're too afraid to challenge things because you might lose the other person. Uh, number two, not stating what you want right up front. Most women don't do this till they're in their mid thirties. And they say, I am tired of dating for fun. I want somebody who actually has my value. So then she's 35 out there trying to find a husband to start having kids with that she wanted, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but she was too afraid to ask through all of the relationships she's had. So if there's any young women out there right now, tell people right up front, Hey, I am looking for commitment and a family. And if the guy says, yeah, that's great. I want that too. Well, okay, cool. Verify that. Don't ever take that's number three. Women take men's word way too seriously. Men's word is good if he's a good man, but you don't know that right up front. If you don't know, if you haven't known his family for 15 years. So if it's a stranger, look for his actions. Hey, okay. You tell me you want a family. That's awesome. What have you done in your life so far? That's conducive to having a family. What have you done to build a family? What have you done to build a platform, a stability, a house, say like, whatever, what are you looking for? How's your financial prospects looking right now? What's your stability? Like you don't have to have $10 million, but is your life conducive toward building a family and commitment? Or are you just throwing that at me right now? Because then you're trying to rush me into the bedroom. What is it? Which one is it? That's that's what you need to be aware of. If he's just trying to flood you with feelings and agree with everything you say to love bomb you, don't trust his words. Just just don't. Women don't ever trust a man's word <laughs> until, until he's proven himself through his actions. That's when you trust his word. Women trust in reverse. They trust his word first until he proves himself wrong. Trust his actions. You have a quote that says the best couples have business meetings to discuss the state of their relationship. They address problems together with a solution focused approach and guarantee mutual fulfillment because a lasting marriage is more like a business than a fairy tale. Now, right now we're talking about single people, first three dates, but what, what it's sounding like a little bit, Adam, is you're, you are kind of having business type conversations early on, not just when you're 10 years or 20 years in a marriage or you have kids. Talk to me about how thinking of if I'm, if I'm following correctly, should we be thinking of these first three dates a little bit as a business interview almost? Let's, um, 
let's do two. Let's do two special little things. I'm going to do sure. here with you today. Number one, um, let's assume you want to go into business. Let's assume you want to start a business and you want that business to run for the next 50 years. It's going to feed your family. It's going to take care of you. It's going to take care of everything that you do. Um, then let's assume that you just completely, you just go out, you find a stranger who looks physically attractive and you say, hi, stranger. I don't know much about you, but how would you like to sign this contract and become my business partner today? And we'll launch a business. Maybe you're a little smarter than that. Okay. Let's say maybe you have business, maybe you have a couple lunches with the stranger first and you only talk during that lunch about hobbies, about fun things, and about how great it's going to be when you spend your time together being in business. If that's all you have talked about and you haven't interviewed them in any other way, shape or form to see if they're a good match for your business. And then you whip out the contract and say, this is pretty fun. You and I are pretty good friends. Let's just start, start a business together right now. It'll be great. There will be no problems. This is the worst dumbest idea to start a business. Now let's ask this question. When two people commit to each other in a romantic relationship, what are they committing to? It is not a commitment to give each other good feelings for the next 40 years until one of you dies and that one wins and the other one's the loser who now has to live alone for the additional 20 years or whatever. That is not what you're committing to. You're not committing to feelings and fun for 40 years. You are committing to build something together that you could not build separately. For many couples, that is a biological family. That is kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. Amazing. For some people, it's adopted kids, mentoring, fostering. It could be building a company together. It could be building a nonprofit. It could be working toward a cause together. Whatever you are going to build together and support each other and enhance each other through, amazing. That's a legacy. What legacy are the two of you co-creating together? You are co-founding the business of marriage together to create a legacy. My wife, stay-at-home mom. Before we before we started having kids, she ran her own business. Now she is a stay-at-home mom to take care of our kids. I work 12 to 14 hours a day taking care of our business, this business that I'm running, taking care of people, guiding people, running a community, all my platforms, coaching, um, selling courses, everything that I do, I do this. I am not creating it alone, and she just happens to be there. We are co-creating our family and our legacy together. My work is partly her legacy because she's helping raise our kids right now. She's out there feeding our kids, teaching them, homeschooling them, everything. I am creating this aspect of the legacy. She's creating that aspect of the legacy. We are also in facilitating each other to be able to do that. If I wasn't working this hard, she couldn't stay home with the kids. If she wasn't working that hard with the kids, I couldn't be working 12 hours a day. I'd have to do childcare. We are co-creating a legacy together. We're in a tough part right now, but it will get easier and easier as we go because we will have more family to help us as we go through. We are co-creating. Build that that way. That's why you don't just jump into it for feelings and say, this will be fun. You don't just check if your partner has the same hobbies as you. You don't just check if it's fun to be around them. You need to have serious conversations that can break you up so that you can challenge and see if you are a good co-founder for a business or a stupid co-founder for a business. If you were tuned out the last minute to three minutes there, turn it back and listen because I think that 10 minute little piece there could save you 10 years of your life. That's so great. Um, okay. I want to move on a little bit here and talk about parenting. And this would be, might be the next reel that goes viral. Um, you talked about your, uh, kids and how you don't, um, let's see, my wife and I never baby talk to our kids. We use full sentences and a wide vocabulary, including complex words. My son is three and can carry a full conversation. Adults at family gatherings are shocked at his social aptitude. My daughter isn't even two, and she uses four-syllable words. Let's start there on the parenting conversation. <laughs> so that tweet was from three years ago. My son is now six and can't speak. No, no he's six, <laughs> and he's he's reading. He's ahead in all. He's he's in he's six. He's in first grade, but he's doing third grade level work. Um, he reads. He's loving it. He's better at math than than most adults, frankly, in modern world. Um, this, this right here has made so many people angry, and I got news articles written about it. Uh, and here's, here's what we need to understand okay. is when you just baby talk at your kids, there's when, when, they're, when they're two you know two months old, you, you can make mimic some of their noises back to them. But when they're a year old, when they're two years old, they're three years old, you are giving them the tools to speak as adults, and you are teaching them the proper language. Now, you can teach them a crap language of the meow meows and all and you could make these weird noises and you could do that with them and is it okay once in a while to play maybe but you need to be teaching them the proper words that's 
literally what you're doing as an adult. You are teaching small adults to become apprentice adults and then master adults, or you can hamstring them by just treating them like fun pets for the first few years. And then, well, you've seen where that ends up. So many kids today don't know how to go out and have social connections, right? We talk about, oh, it's fine to baby talk to your kids. Like modern parents are so much better than previous parents. Well, again, let's rewind to the beginning of the episode where we were talking about the overwhelming amount of social anxiety of, I don't know how to communicate with other human beings. I can't articulate my needs. Is that down to language? Well, maybe, but maybe that's just because you didn't have a frank adult conversation with a child and show them what that's supposed to be like. What's the pushback on that? Why do people push back so hard? Well, why, 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 why was it so controversial? I mean, I saw there was like good morning news channel of people like really getting after you on this. Mm-hmm. Why was there such pushback? Quite frankly, it's because people felt I was bragging about my children oh, okay. and what they can do. They thought that I was saying my children are smarter than your children. Okay. Is, sure. a, is a lot of what it was. And that wasn't the point at all. No. The point was if you guys invest in your children the way I have invested in my children, and then my, my wife has invested in our children, they are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. Our children are capable. I, I'm he's not my kid's not a rocket physicist yet, but he's six years old, man. He can he is amazingly smart. And when I wonder if he's gonna get a concept, I just kind of don't dumb it down, but I make it at his level where his language is so far, which is pretty advanced for most kids his age. And he picks it up and he's brilliant. My daughters, same thing. They are astoundingly smart. If you give them these things, they are a vessel that expands to contain what you give them. If you give them this much, they expand to contain this much. If you give them this much, they expand to contain this much. It's phenomenal. Put investment into your children. Invest in your kids so that they, in turn, can grow bigger than you ever were. That's the goal of parenthood. Another continue with the parent theme here. Here's another quote from you. If your child is an asshole, it's your fault. Take some, take some responsibility. A hundred percent. Like I think Jordan Peterson said, you'll raise the child. You'd want to be friends with someday. And then I echo that your child is somebody that you are helping foster and create. You are creating an adult. You're not, they're not merely a blank slate. They have their own features, but you are helping them to become the best version of the person they will become someday, or you're not. If you're totally checked out and it's beer and Netflix and fun and like, hey, I'll, I'll play with my kid once a week or something like that, not going to work. You need to invest in them more deeply than that. If your kid is angry, selfish, pushing back, if they feel like they have to take from other people to get their own needs met and they don't understand what it's like to hurt somebody else, they don't care that they've hurt someone else, that is a deep deep problem with the lessons you didn't teach them. Those are absolute basic lessons you need to teach your kids. We should be keeping our kids out of prison. Not that every mom with a kid in prison is the problem. Dad needs to be there too, but both parents need to be investing in taking care of their child and raising a successful adult who can go out into this world and do what is best for them in their life. Here's another one. Reminder that your kids should leave home at 18 is a setup by the central banks to make 10 family members pay 10 rents and mortgages, 10 sets of utilities, 10 car payments, and 10 of every item for a home, plus entertainment and stress to relief cope with being alone. And in addition, you say, U.S. parents, when you're 18, say, it's time for you to be alone. It won't help you. Nobody helped me. And look how great it turned out. Now get out and don't come back. U.S. parents, when you're 50, say, okay, I blew your inheritance. I'm old and need you. You got me, right? Families are meant to live together. Families are meant to be together. When I say that, people get furious because they had a bad family and they say, Adam, you want me to go be enslaved to my family? I will I will destroy myself. No, 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 no. Families are meant to be together, nurture each other, care for each other's needs, be mutually fulfilling, taking care of each individual and taking care of the family system at the same time, not smothering the individuals for the sake of the collective. No, no, no. But we are tearing apart the collective for the sake of each individual to then be able to go out and just engage in endless hedonism and safety and privacy and and every single person now living utterly completely alone and hating it. So many of my male clients live completely alone and they say, Adam, what am I supposed to do with my life? So many of my female clients live utterly alone and say, the most miserable part of my day is coming home and sitting here in my empty, silent house. I'm now 33 years old. I thought I would have somebody and I have nobody. 
Now, does that get fixed automatically if you just get married and have kids or have a partner or have a cat? Not necessarily, because as many young couples discover, now it's really hard to raise a child and have to take care of everybody with just two parents, one of you working or both of you working, shoving your kids into daycare. Daycare also, they've shown, has bad mental health outcomes for a lot of kids. The research proves this in a, in a, a long study. Over 20 years of research, they showed it has bad mental health outcomes for kids when you dump them into daycare. It's, it's, it's a brutal system. Families are meant to stay together. Do you have to live in the same house? Not necessarily. Could you live in, a, in neighboring houses? Could you live close to each other? Or you have those safety networks, right? Those five networks we're supposed to have. Can you use family and in, in can you use neighbors in place of family, friends in place of family? Yes. Families, humans are meant to have systems that we live together because we are always going to need each other. Now, our culture says, get out, have fun, right? The GI bills after World War II, you know, every GI could have a home. And then we had mommy's little helper, Valium came along and mommy's little helper to take, take, take her nerves down as she had to endlessly do all the work herself alone that 10 women could have been doing in a family network. No, one woman now individually has to do every single thing and completely bury herself in work every day and then have a husband come home and be like, hey, all right, what's for dinner? That That is not the normal system. That's not how it's supposed to work. We are supposed to be in close, close, close networks that love us and people who care for us. What about, the remember that. what about the importance of just having a roommate? Maybe it's not a family member. Maybe it's not a significant other, but living with somebody. Because what I'm catching here is that you're talking about family would be ideal. Yes. But okay. let's say going to college or let's say you're moving away, whatever it is, living alone in a, in a studio apartment versus just living with somebody. Tell me about that. It is absolutely crucial that we have human beings around us that care about us and that we can work with. So having a roommate that you have completely no connection with may be slightly better than being alone, but maybe not. Having a roommate who's completely irrational and flies off the handle whenever you ask them to take care of their dishes in the sink, probably not. But we are going to have to go back to a system where we have, we have at least pseudo families, where people are not utterly alone in these, these gigantic skyscrapers where we just slot people in and say, all right, go live there alone for the next 30 years. You're on disability. No one's going to really check on you. It's all right. Just kind of do your thing until you die. That's that's the reality of what people are being funneled into now. When you drive through major cities, you see old, like large, unpainted buildings. A lot of those, um, the unkind term for them that many social workers use is crack stacks. They just shove people with low income into those who are alone, and the people go in there and use drugs and live alone until they die. And that's it's a horrible, horrible system, horrible name. But that's the reality of what we are creating is just this endless hive system of lonely people who hate their life. Pseudo families, I believe, are going to be a big chunk for the future of people connecting, building those family bonds, roommates. Yes, maybe all of you pitch in and buy like a condo unit that has five different apartments, but you all live together in a cluster. So it's almost like living in one house where you form a small village and you take care of each other. One of you is sick. The other ones take care of you. One of you has financial issues. The other ones help you. Like it's not a commune like, like hippies or communism, but you take care of each other like a village. We're going to have to rebuild villages. One more concept I want to get into with Adam. So as a, as a, as a mental performance coach, I get into mindset. I work with athletes and whether it's in a one-on-one -on -one setting or when I'm doing programs at high schools, one of the questions I like to lean on is what's holding you back from becoming a better leader or a better athlete. And typically in my limited time of doing this, there's been a common theme of at least one person in every program or one of my athletes come up to me and say, one of my major things that holds me back is the is the huge expectation my dad or my mom has of me to be X, Y, and Z. And it breaks my heart because I just, you know, I want to just talk to the parents and be like, gosh, you know, what, what's going on here? And, and you feel for this young woman who's just, you know, wants to perform well, but no, nothing's ever good enough. Now, I've also had this conversation with some people on the other side of the coin, which also surprised me. Kids saying things like, yeah, my parents don't really expect anything from me. And because of that, I, I don't really care if I get a good grade and I don't care to play basketball. And I certainly don't care to like get uncomfortable and do hard things. So I, I would love to get your opinion on, and this is a little bit to scratch my own itch when I go out to these high schools and talk to these kids about the power of expectations from their parents. And in two ways, one, it's power of too much expectation, too high. And then it's also power of, they got no expectations. They don't give a, you know what about what I do or don't do. Can we open this conversation? 100%. So this is something I wrote about in my book, Slaying Your Fear. 
called uh, investing in outcomes instead. Ah, there you go. Investing in outcomes instead of investing in relationships. Parents either invest in outcomes where the only thing that matters is the outcome. My child is going to be a surgeon. And if they're not a surgeon, they are a complete and utter failure of their talent that they had. They should be a surgeon or there is nothing else in life and there's no purpose. And I will simply tell them for the next 50 years that they failed me by not becoming a surgeon or, or, or an athlete or whatever it may be. Investing purely in outcomes instead of into the relationship with the human being and saying, what is really best for this human being? All right, I've got a six-year-old son. I am not saying you must go out and become a mental health expert and follow exactly in my footsteps and, and do everything. If he wants to, fantastic. If he wants to do something else, okay, let's figure out realistically what else you are good at and what else you can do. And let's walk you through the pathway of becoming the best version of that. Let's work on that and be realistic. No, I'm not going to say he should be, go become a unicorn rancher because it's not realistic. And that's some adults, just some, some grownups just do that. Yeah, you can paint butterflies for the rest of your life. You'll be a millionaire. No, no, no. Be, be invest in your child. But by, on the other token, invest in your child at all. Get your nose out of your own life and pay attention to the fact that you are raising a human being who has 80 years on this planet that they're going to have to live. They're going to have to outlive you. They're going to have to take care of themselves. They're going to have to do all kinds of things. Teach them to embrace what is difficult, knowing that they have someone loving at their back who's going to take care of them if they fall, if they make a mistake, if they don't do it great, if they have to switch to something else because it's just really a bad fit. Keep that in mind and work with them. Optimize them. Every single parent is a coach. Every parent is a coach. And we must be coaching our kids to get the best version of the life that they're going to live. That doesn't mean we criticize them at every mistake. Like, oh, well, now you failed because you're not going to get the best outcome in life. You're only going to be at the 93%. No, you say, okay, well, great. That's where you're at. Then the best, here's the best you can aim for. Let's do it. Let's get you there. Let's see if we can break that limit together. If we can't, that's okay. Let's test. Let's figure this out together. Be excited about your child's life, but be excited about your child's life, not your outcome you're trying to reach. And what about the advice to maybe the athlete or the student that is listening and they're dealing with parents of high expectations or no expectations? Really mm -hmm. tough one, and I'm sure it's very person-dependent, but what are your thoughts on if you could speak to them? No expectations is almost harder to deal with because the kid just like flounders and says, what's the point of life? Like, what am I supposed to do? Then they shy away from discomfort. They shy away from pain. They shy away from everything. And they end up just 35, 40 years old. And I get those clients in my practice. Their parents have paid for their coaching sessions because their parents, they have failure to launch, whatever they call it. And their parents have paid for their coaching session. And they're like, well, I can only afford a couple, but tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I say, okay, what are your principles? What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? I don't know. So we have to talk about building purpose and meaning into their life. Find purpose and meaning in life now. What would resonate with you? What would say, yeah, I lived this life. I'm 80 years old. I look back and I have had human impact. Human impact is the number one thing. What human impact do you want to have in this world? Go out and start learning the skills to make it. That is what you need to do. Otherwise, you will be 80 years old and say, I have done nothing and I hate my life. And there's no one around me and I'm all alone and I'm waiting to die. Don't do that. If your parents have overwhelming expectations, here's what you need to do. Number one, be aware that their love for you should not be conditional based on your performance level. And likely it's not. If you ask them, they will tell you that's not the case. So if you need it just to push seems back, that way. it seems that way. If you mm -hmm. need to push back, ask them, you know, dad, I really want to live up to your expectations, but there's something that's cutting me apart. And I don't know if I can perform and it's holding me back. I need to ask you like, if I give it my best and can't do this, would you still love me or am I disowned at that point? If I haven't, if I haven't given up and failed that way, but I've given up, I've lost because I can't do it. Is my, is your love for me based on my performance or is it based on giving it my best? Which one is it? And those parents will probably be shocked and say, why would you even think that my love for you is based on performance? No, I would still love you. And they'll say, but I really want you to try your hardest. But that's the conversation that needs to be had is push back that way. Be aware that you're probably going to go out into the world and think that everything is based on your performance. And that's why your anxiety level is going to be so high. You'll accomplish a lot until you suddenly flame out and have a nervous breakdown. And then you'll have to spend all the money you've gathered so far just repairing your damaged psyche and your damaged health. Like stop. Understand that love is not supposed to be conditional to that extent. It's not supposed to be based on performance. It's supposed to be based on principles and values and how you choose to love other people or don't 
That's what love is mostly based on is who you actually are, not what you've accomplished or, or your performance. Stop and have that talk. Clarify. Tough topics, tough conversations, but it's also, it's real life, Adam. It's real. I mean, people are experiencing this more than I, than I ever knew. And so, yeah, I appreciate you um, expounding on that. So uh, last time we talked about the, well, as we closed down here, you gave me a life hack. It went viral. I'm going to challenge you. Do you have one or two? You've given us so much already, but one or two more life hacks, and maybe this will go viral as well. What, what, what do you have cracking? Oh boy. I'm going to have to think about this one. Okay, here we go. If you're afraid of what other people think of you, it's your fault. Because you have trapped yourself into your own brain in a perpetual spiral that is never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And I don't say it's your fault because you're a bad person. It's your fault because you have not cracked open and worked with the other person to ask them what they actually think of you and how to make it better. If you want to get out of your head and stop overthinking things and sabotaging your relationships or sabotaging your own happiness, stop when you're overthinking and ask the other person if there's a problem. And if so, what do you need to do to correct it? That right there will stop the overthinking, stop the sabotaging and stop the misery cycle. And that will fix your attachment at the same time. Easy. <laughs> you had that one lined up, ready to go in your back pocket, Adam. That was awesome, man. Hey, so cool. There's some common themes I'm pulling out from listening to you, man. I've listened to a ton of your stuff. I've obviously researched you a lot before the, this podcast and before the last one. A lot of it comes down to clear communication, getting super clear about your expectations and not being afraid of having difficult conversations. My dad always taught me from an early age, agreements prevent disagreements. And if you can just kind of have that motto in your life, I think that just is going to be it's going to save you so many years and and breakups and heartaches by just being really clear about what do you want 100 that's that is what human relationships are supposed to be built on not feelings and guessing but facts and mutual care cool adam you're the man um if i want to point my listeners you got a lot going on a lot of different channels where's the best oh, yes, way to find you and then um also i got the book slay your fear i really enjoy it so i'm an advocate of it um where else can they find you what where can i point them Hundred percent, man. So, best place number one, TikTok. I've got almost three hundred thousand followers on there. I do six live stream events a week. I am at Attachment Bro. I'm also blowing up Facebook. I'm at uh, Adam Lane Smith over on Facebook as well. We've just spiked hardcore. Instagram, if you like high visuals and really informative pieces like that, over there at Attachment Adam. I'm also on YouTube at Adam Lane Smith. And my website, adamlanesmith.com. I've got a whole video course on there, the attachment bootcamp that walks you through the 10 steps to fixing all of these insecurity problems so you can build great relationships and relax into your life and build the best version of you. Cool. Adam, thanks for taking the time for round two. This is a pleasure. Thanks for being here. This was fun. 